We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this week we'll be talking about the demise of the development academy uh we'll be doing a global player draft we'll be talking about pro rel yeah we're gonna go there pro rel as it pertains to liga mx we'll be doing a compare and contrast between pele and senna and who's more important there in uh, brazil and so much more but first joining me as always my friend my colleague my guiding light david mossy a soccer savant and a fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire mossy how are you on this Monday morning as opposed to Sunday morning, and I will get to that in a second. How are you, my friend? I am good. I had a quiet weekend, but it sounds like the same can't be said for you. (laughs) I did not have a quiet weekend. You know, uh, life and real life intrudes. We apologize that we are coming to you 24 hours late in terms of the uh, schedule that we've had for the last couple of months here, recording on a, on a Sunday and out on a Monday morning. This is uh, obviously going to be out on a, uh, a Tuesday morning. There is, there is good reason. The last place in the world right now, Mossy, that anybody wants to be, and let's be honest, even in normal times, let's say the last place anybody wants to be is at a hospital, right? So... I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was ranting and raving about, you know, some, some of the moronic behavior of uh, human beings out there in this time. And I, I brought up the point that, you know, you're going to overflow and, and cause problems in the emergency rooms and in, uh, in, in the hospitals. And somebody who needs help, not even necessarily help uh, relative to the virus, but could be a kid, you know, having an appendectomy or something like that. Well, you know, I spent the last, uh, tw- uh, let's see, uh, 24, 36 hours at a hospital with uh, one of my children because, you know, that's, that's the way it works, right? We had uh, appendicitis, uh, we had an appendectomy, and everything went well. Everything's fine uh, relative to most things out there. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no uh, routine type of surgery, but certainly this is a very common type of occurrence. Uh, I'm glad to say that everything is fine. I want to shout out to the uh, wonderful folks, the doctors and the nurses uh, and all the staff at uh, Torrance Memorial here in Southern California, where I live for the incredible you know, way that they, uh, they handled everything. It was really interesting, Mossy. As I said, you know, the hospitals right now are for, you know, on the, uh, on the forefront and something that we think about right now. It's strange. It has taken this pandemic. And look, we are in a completely different situation here relative to people out east, and especially when it comes to New York. But they have, you know, lockdown procedures there and incredible security and incredible, uh, you know, health procedures that are going on there to protect everybody, not the patients, not just the patients, but everybody in there. So they had it locked down. There was only one visitor. I was the only one from the family. And because she was underage, uh, under 18, I was able to be there. Everything went well. Uh, No problem. Thank you very, very much. But it was a little surreal at a time when we've been on lockdown for the last month. Then all of a sudden, life happens. And the next thing you know, you're in an emergency room and then you are in a uh, waiting room waiting for surgery to be done and all that kind of stuff. But we are fine. And, uh, you know, these things happen, as I explained to everybody. So I hope everybody else is, uh, is out there fine because all of the different things that happen in life continue 
just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean these things stop, including things like appendicitis. So if this is the worst of it, then we're still much better than a lot of people out there that are dealing with things. But that's how I spent my, uh, my weekend. So we couldn't record on a Sunday, which is why we're recording on Monday. Uh, but I will repeat, uh, thank you very, very much uh, going, to the, uh, going to the hospital. The, the people were wonderful, incredibly professional, incredibly kind. And obviously, they're doing work much more uh, important work and in-depth work and unfortunately much more uh, risky work uh, that goes on there. But they, uh, they were wonderful. And as I said, it seems that it has taken this pandemic to get people to realize that they don't need to go to the emergency room for just any old thing out there. And it was kind of, in a strange way, the calm before the storm and this deserted area uh, that it was. And so hopefully that lasts even after this, because we know that even in the, in, in the best of times, a lot of people go just for any old thing. And that's not something that the emergency room is there for. It's there for obviously emergencies, which is, uh, which is what it was. Okay. Uh, Mossy, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, Mossy, we're going to dive right into uh, one of the big stories from this past week. And that is the, let's well, now uh, the uh, former USSF, United States Soccer Federation Development Academy Program. Now, for those that don't know, most of the people out there have an idea about it, but real quick refresher, this is a uh, youth development program started by the United States Soccer Federation in 2007, and it was designed to give elite players out there, elite, both uh, boys and girls, uh, young men, young women, a pathway and an opportunity that was, shall we say, a, a much more robust and professional uh, and streamlined and articulated type of environment, both on and off the field. And it was basically just to ramp up the type of elite development that we have out there. Major League Soccer teams were involved in it, as were some very big clubs from all over the country. And Come to find out a few days ago, an announcement from the United States Soccer Federation that this program has ceased to exist, not just for the year, but in totality. It is gone. This program that, as we said, started 13 years ago will be no more. Uh, and it came about very quickly from a PR perspective. However, if you had followed this for any length of time, this should not necessarily have been a surprise. There have been rumblings for a long time that... People were not happy with the direction. Uh, in, in particular, Major League Soccer wanted to branch out and do some, do, do some things on their own. And that what it was initially intended to be, in practice, it wasn't that. And absolutely, uh, there was success stories behind it, but there was also consternation out there when it came to how it was run. As I said before, the concept was you know, better coaching, better resources, obviously a higher level of competition on a consistent basis, much more training as opposed to games and that kind of stuff. Uh, U.S. soccer has framed it in, in terms of the coronavirus uh, situation that we know is hitting business all over the place, the amount of money that was being spent. But let's be honest right now, uh, this was something that had been talked about way before and something that had been contemplated. And I think the time that we are in right now, it was a convenient thing for the United States Soccer Federation to use. And I'm not saying it had nothing to do with it. There is a financial aspect that right now is off the books. And we know the United States Soccer Federation is looking for ways to get as much money uh, off the books that they have been spending uh, right now, especially when it comes to the lawsuits. So anything that you can do to try to stem the you know, the, uh, the, the problems out there and this amount, millions and millions of dollars that was put into this thing that already was on, let's, let's be honest, it's probably some life support as to uh, whether it was continued or not. It made sense to do that thing. All right, Mossy, I think I've framed that, uh, that up correctly right there. I'll ask your initial thoughts here before I give, uh, before I give you mine. Does it matter to you uh, or why should it matter to the people that listen and watch to us about the DA uh, Academy going away? Well, there was a second big announcement in conjunction with this, the fact that MLS is starting its own youth developmental league for its own clubs and also for some non-MLS clubs. And so I think the headline here for me is the responsibility for youth development in this country has now shifted from the U.S. Soccer Federation to MLS. And this is coming at a time when people are debating the relationship between the U.S. national team and MLS. 
and discussing to what degree MLS should be in the service of the U.S. national team. So are you comfortable with an arrangement in which MLS is now taking on the responsibility of developing young American players? So this, this subject kind of hits a lot of the big things that I have talked about over the years. For example, I often will say that in American soccer, I would rather somebody have, and, and I guess in general life, but I would rather somebody have a flawed plan than no plan at all. And oftentimes we wing it when it comes to our soccer plans out there. This undoubtedly was a plan, a big, bold, arrogant, and I use that word as, as a good positive word, Let's do something different. Let's do something to help soccer in a way that has never been thought of or, uh, or done before. Absolutely. I don't think that that's, whether you liked it or not, it, it's undeniable. This was a big type of sea change that was uh, trying, to, uh, trying to happen. The flaw in it was, as you mentioned, should the United States Soccer Federation be involved in that type of development? in that type of blanket approach. And I think what, what came out of it, especially as MLS continued to uh, improve and to grow was that autonomy needed to go back and it was desired to go back by a lot of these clubs that wanted to do things their own way. We talk so much on this podcast about what is style or identity or principle out there when it comes to a club. And that's really where it is fostered. And that's really where you can foster it. To do it through the entire country from a USSF perspective, I think it is incredibly difficult. And this gets back to another thing that we talk about on this podcast, this Iceland comparison. Well, we are not Iceland and we will never be Iceland. Just the sheer size that we have when it comes to our country and the geography and in the incredible diversity that we have that, as I say, each and every time makes us the greatest country in the world, but also makes it very, very difficult to produce teams because everybody is heading in different directions. I think you found a lot of that in that from on high, the United States Soccer Federation saying, this is what we want to do because they recognized that they needed to kind of get everybody at least headed in as close to the same direction as they could. And they found out very quickly how difficult it was and how, how much pushback there has been, especially when you have other entities, MLS as an entity and MLS individual clubs that at times look at the game completely different. And I think that's reflected in the things that we are seeing there. As you said, United States Soccer Federation is getting out of the player development uh, game and kind of saying, okay, you go do it. But having done that, recognize that, you know, a couple things. We are once again going to have a lot of different ideas as to how to do it. And then the United States Soccer Federation is ultimately going to have to pick and choose which ideas to use for their own and say, this is your identity over here. Well, it might not jive with what we're doing over here. And that gets back to that whole thing of, you know, I asked the question earlier uh, this week on Twitter. I said, if the United States Soccer Federation put all of the resources and time and money and energy into fostering and promoting players in Southern California only from a men's perspective, all of that money that goes to the, the men's team right now was put solely on fostering a team from Southern California and that team went on to win the World Cup, would you be okay with that? And my point is that if you say you're okay with that, well, that's fine, but that's not what the Soccer Federation's mandate is. And in, doing, in being exclusive, they're not being inclusive in what they're doing. So you know, all of that is to say, Mossy, that you know, this, I think when you look at it, you look at Pulisic, Sargent, Zardes, Morris, Adams, the, the, the list goes on. I think, and I asked this question also on Twitter, I think it's hard to say that this was a failure because of the amount of talent that was given opportunities. I think the question is, if the USDA hadn't been around, would these same players still, even in the recognizable Wild West that is youth soccer, still have found a way to be as good or maybe, maybe even better? And I do think that when all is said and done, the USDA will still have been will still be looked at as a net, net positive in terms of the development of soccer, even if it's going away, even if there were 
absolutely admitted problems along the way. Yeah, I think the, the macro view would be the U.S. didn't qualify for the last World Cup. They haven't qualified for the last two Olympics. I think most of us feel like the U.S. has stagnated as a soccer nation in the last 15 years. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the level of talent right now is not discernibly better than it was in 2002. So people look at that and conclude that it must have been a failure. But I think you feel like that's a tad simplistic, right? Yeah, I, I could even argue that because the United States Soccer Federation maybe bit off more than it could chew and in doing so, tried to be everything to everybody, or as I said, blanket themselves to everybody and, and force feed it on everybody. In doing that, maybe that's the reason why we have had a dip. Maybe that's the reason why the Olympics haven't come to, has, haven't come to be. And once again, I can, I can value and appreciate the United States Soccer Federation wanting to do something differently. And it's, <laughs> it, it is just more of the questions and the concerns and the real challenges and the unique challenges, Mossy, that we face over here in the United States that nobody else faces in the same way around the world. And so this, this compare and contrast that at times can be beneficial, but at times it's so apples and oranges that it's just a waste of time, uh, a waste of time to do it. I, I think you're seeing what happens now. So. We said, as you, as you mentioned, that MLS immediately, by the way, and the, it was almost as if they coincided, <laughs> and they did, uh, with the announcement of the canceling of DA, with the announcement that MLS is going to have, and I don't know what they're, they still don't know what they're going to call it, but it's going to be this MLS version that gives them the opportunity and the autonomy that they want within the clubs to do what they want to do in terms of how they play. It also gives them uh, the opportunity to play much more internationally, which there's a recognition, I think, from MLS that that is, what they're being, that is what they're being compared to. And so they need to have that option on the table much more so than they have. You know, the travel costs were a huge thing that people talked about. And it's one thing if it's not costing you, I'm not going to call it free, but it's not costing you as a player anything because the clubs are absorbing that payment. It's another thing if you are a big club and you're actually having to charge it and it gets into really, really, uh, really, really high fees. The interesting thing is going to be who MLS, and they've said they're going to add other teams that aren't MLS, who they are going to affiliate with and who are they are going to allow into this new club that they have that is this development type of scenario and where those regions are. Because, you know, for example, I had someone call me uh, from Detroit and say, what do I do now? Obviously, Detroit is a big market. There are plenty of good players in Detroit, but that market was not served by Major League Soccer. But it's not as if nobody knows about it. And so do they pick a club in Detroit to kind of represent MLS and MLS's interests, by the way, by letting, the, by letting them in? Or do they say, you know what, that, that region is it's not dead, but it's not going to be covered in the way that it was in the way that it was in the past. And it gets to that point of geography and the immense nature of our country and therefore the inability to cover every single area and zone and trying to spread ourselves and in doing so spread ourselves so thin that you're not really doing it in the way that you, the way that you want, which gets right back to my original uh, statement of just concentrating your efforts in one place that you recognize is fertile. And is that actually the best, uh, is that actually the best way to go? Masi, thoughts? Well, it's interesting. One of the criticisms I read of the Developmental Academy is that the games were artificial. They lacked emotion. You're teaching kids how to play the game, but you're not really instilling a competitive spirit and a winning mentality. And I might be conflating two things here that have nothing to do with each other. But recently, there was a youth soccer seminar in Brazil. And there was a representative from Barcelona's La Masia Academy who gave a presentation. And he talked about how in their youth games at La Masia, they don't even keep score because they think the concept of winning and losing is sort of antithetical to youth development. Their sole focus is on teaching players, quote unquote, how to play the game. And so it seems like, and they were applauded for that. And so everyone is still trying to figure out exactly the right way to go about it, because I've heard criticisms one way, and then you, you hear it the other way. So I don't know, what, what are your overall thoughts on that? But that's something that has to be decided by, by league, okay? Because first off, all kids keep score. And I don't think that keeping score in and of itself is detrimental. As a matter of fact, fostering competition and recognizing that not just in soccer, but in life. And by the way, we are, you know, I know this is about elite development, but 
even in elite development, there's still a very small percentage that actually make it to the full team or to the national team or, or wherever that highest level is, is for you. And so giving them the skills and the understanding and those life lessons that, you know what, life is about competition. There is a winner and guess what? There is a loser at times in life. It doesn't mean that you can't become a winner and it doesn't mean as a winner, you can't become a loser. But oftentimes there is a scoreboard in life. But from a developmental standpoint, that's all fine and well. If that's what you want to do, you have to make it very clear. You have to articulate it for your team and anybody that's coming into that team in terms of development. And when you are playing against others, you have to make it very, very clear. And others have to be willing to go into that with the understanding that I'm playing against a team that doesn't care if they win or lose. Well, okay. But when you get to the highest level, you care. Everybody cares if you win or lose. And, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy that is debated and, and, and will continue to be debated. Here's, here's the other thing, Mossy, because ultimately we're adults talking about this. This is about anybody that has a passion for anything in life. We have a passion for soccer. I would hope that with that passion comes a belief and a desire to pass it on, to give others that passion at whatever level it, it, it ends up being, but to... And that if, if, there's, if there is none of that in you, then I would submit that you're not as passionate as you think that, uh, that you are. The ability for that passion to be instilled at a young age in players. And this is going to affect both boys and girls out there. But I do believe that with a void comes opportunity. And I don't think that anybody that right now is sitting around, and I know that there are parents out there, there are coaches out there, there are clubs out there, and there are players out there, young players out there, and saying, well, my, my world has been, just been turned upside down. What am I going to do now? Don't worry, uh, because I truly believe that there will be, in some cases, even better opportunities for you. And in that void, others will find ways to fill it and give you the type of soccer experience that you want. And it might be, it might be better suited for you in a strange way. Maybe this makes people and forces people to say, you know what, as opposed to that cookie cutter blanket type of thing that we're doing out there, we're going to go and we're going to do something different. And that might be something that you've been craving and that you fit into, or it might come from over here. But I do believe that Others will fill that void. And, and yes, in a business perspective, I know we talk about youth soccer oftentimes in, in, in the context of, of business, but there is a void and therefore there is that opportunity to give young players what they want, what their parents want, and maybe an alternative uh, arises. Maybe something different that we haven't seen out there arises because of this. I also think it's interesting that this is occurring against the backdrop of the U.S. women's equal pay dispute. You mentioned the financial difficulties of the Federation. Obviously, the crisis we're experiencing right now is a big part of that, but also it doesn't help having this lawsuit hanging over them and the fact that they're likely going to have to pay a massive settlement. And also, the more you read, you realize that the decision to form a girls' developmental academy in 2017 was in large part due to the optics because they felt like if they do it for the, for the men, they should have it for the women. And they didn't take into consideration the needs of women's soccer relative to the men, and maybe it didn't make as much sense for the women. And also, in the last few weeks and months, as they were debating whether to shutter this program, the notion of perhaps keeping one, getting rid of the other was a non-starter because in this world we're living in right now, they couldn't even allow for the appearance of any sort of gender inequality. So perhaps the women's program didn't make as much sense and needed to be shuttered altogether, but the men could have been preserved with some tweaks, but that was like a non-starter. They couldn't even uh, conceive of going that way. So uh, what did you make of that? So one of the questions that I got immediately when this, when this news broke was, well, what happens to the women's development out there? Because if it's being, you know, if it's being taken over, for lack of a better phrase, by Major League Soccer in their announcement right off the bat, we all know that there's only a few Major League Soccer teams that have a direct affiliation or any affiliation for that matter, with women's professional teams. And part of youth development, in my eyes, has to be ambition and aspiration. You have to be able to see that path. It has to be aspirational in giving you and highlighting that path to the highest level. Whatever that may be, you, you get to choose. But oftentimes, it's, it's the full team. And if you don't have that from a female perspective uh, and on the women's side, then it makes it that much more, that much more difficult. As I said before, and as you, and you pointed out, 
you know, at times it was done not because there was any belief necessarily, or there was less belief that this was, this was going to be, you know, something that made sense from an economic perspective, but a lot of times it was optics and it was the, it was the right thing to do. Maybe in a certain way, this forces MLS teams to rethink their position when it comes to having that companion side on the women's side when it comes to the when it comes to their brand. But I think it's hard because people ask me, well, are these MLS teams also going to have a, a, a women's component to it? And I think it I think it becomes hard if you don't have that aspirational side of it with the with the ultimate uh, team right there. But once again, so there's there's a void. And I think there will be people that will step up and entities that will step up and fill that void because women's soccer is not going anywhere. The potential for women's soccer continues to be incredible. And women's soccer players are just going to become more and more. And they're going to need places to play. And somebody is going to fill that void and say, here is a place to play that's going to give you what you want. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. Uh, look, this is a this is a subject that we could talk about for for hours and hours, and I know we only scratched the surface uh, the surface here. But you know, once again, just to, just to end this off, it it highlights what we have talked about uh, for so many years right now is that incredible diversity of thought out there, which means that you know the ability to put together teams in a way that everybody agrees is difficult in and of itself. But in a country like the United States, where we all think about the game different ways, it makes it that much, that much more difficult. But I do believe, as I said before, that people will fill voids and there will be stuff out there. And in a strange way, we may look back and say, this was the right thing to do because it gave us so much more opportunity, maybe than what you didn't have in the past. And maybe it catered to the diversity of our country and the recognition that it can't be the same for everybody out there in terms of what we are uh, what we are giving people all right we'll keep an eye on this and see how it shapes out because as we said mls hasn't even named whatever their thing is going to be going forward and there will be others when it comes to both the men's and the women's side boys and girls uh, side out there but it is a constantly changing type of youth soccer landscape out there i know at times it's the wild west i know at times it's difficult and it's frustrating for for parents out there and for player uh, and for players out there. But I think, unfortunately, not unfortunately, it's it's the reality of the country and culture that we that we live in. It is to be expected. We are not homogenous, and we certainly aren't an Iceland where it comes to such a small uh, a small group. Uh, as I say each and every time, it's easier to get ten people to go to the corner than it is to get a hundred people to go to the corner. All right, Mossy, enough of that. Uh, let's talk about some other things here. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, Mossy, here's some uh, Ask Alexi questions. And uh, as everybody knows that listens and watches each and every week, we put it out there and we get all sorts of different people asking us questions on the social media platforms out there, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or anything else uh, out there. Just use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, or by the way, Ask Mossy, and we will have... Uh, We'll pick three, as we have done uh, this week. And who knows? Maybe in the future, Mossy will be asking your question. Mossy, what do the people want to know about this week? First up, at James WAVL82, no question, just please discuss this. And the this he's alluding to is he linked to an article about the fact that League MX is suspending promotion relegation for the next five years, which is a very interesting development. A couple things going on here. First off, the second division in Mexico having massive financial difficulties. It's been contracting in recent years, teams declaring bankruptcy, teams struggling to meet the financial requirements to even be in the top division. And also in Mexico, they're grappling with this question of to what degree should domestic clubs be at the service of the national team? And they've concluded that they should be doing more. And so the solution they came up with here is the second division is essentially going to be a developmental league in which teams are going to be required mostly to play uh, Mexican players under the age of 23. So rather than spending money in an effort to get promoted, uh, essentially the second division of Mexico is going to function as a feeder league for the top division in developing young Mexican players. So what did you make of this story? <laughs> uh, that's what I make of it. <laughs> no, I mean, look, this is, <laughs> this is logical, okay? And this is why I've said for years, if you give owners of teams the opportunity to decide whether they want 
to be assured and therefore secure that they're not going to be relegated or not, of course they're going to take that. And that's essentially what, what has happened. You, know, you mentioned the fact that while we love to talk about promotion relegation, I do. And, and for the record, once again, for the 100th time, I have no problem with, uh, with promotion or relegation. I have lived it. I understand the entertainment. I love watching it. But I don't think that it should be forced or mandated on anyone. And I don't need it to enjoy my soccer. And when it comes to the business of soccer, which, and, and by the way, business in general is already part of business is risk and inherent risk when it comes to the world of soccer that we see each and every day. And if you have an opportunity to mitigate some of that risk, and in this case, mitigate a lot of it, which is going down or being relegated, of course you're going to vote on that side. So this just should come as no surprise. And you mentioned it, Mossy, and you hit it on the head. This is also a direct result of the reality of the business out there that oftentimes is not talked about enough. There was not a single team that could live up to the minimum standards and the restrictions and requirements when it came to possibly being elevated and being promoted. And so that's why this decision you know, was much easier to make. It's one thing if there are people down uh, in lower divisions that are crying and uh, saying this isn't fair and I have the ability, why aren't you giving, uh, giving me the chance? And then you take that away from them. This is another one where, uh, this is a situation where they said, well, it's not even feasible. And that's, you know, part and parcel of why they're making the, the second division much more of a feeder and developmental type, uh, type of situation. It does, it does bring up the question and, and raise the, uh, the conversation of, you know, something that is kind of evergreen right now. And that's that internal possibility of having a league that does involve Liga MX with Major League Soccer and therefore a what would amount to a three country type of league. And we know what's happening in 2026. I don't see that type of integration happening uh, in the way that we're talking about it until that World Cup happens or maybe beyond that World Cup situation. But it should come as no surprise that business people, when given the opportunity, are certainly going to uh, mitigate their risk. Now, promotion relegation, zealots out there will scream and yell and say, but this is taking away the competition aspect of it. And therefore, they're going to sit on their laurels that they have right now. And since there are no consequences when it comes to relegation in the, for the next five years, they're not going to spend as much. They're not going to compete as much on and off the field. And that's, that's completely legitimate in the terms of the conversation and the discussion and debate that we, that we have out there right now. But it doesn't change the fact that this is what they are going to do. And as I said before, it should, it should come to, to surprise of no one that they decided to go in this direction. And the zealots, uh, as you say, are the likes of Carlos Vela, Hector Moreno, Hector Herrera, because they've started kind of a Twitter campaign against this decision. They've mm-hmm. been tweeting exactly what you're saying, that it's going to sap uh, Mexican football of any sense of competition. And so, uh, so what they is- should do, so what those <laughs> players should do, is take all of the money that they've made in their illustrious careers, okay, and go become owners, okay? But I don't want them to become owners of the best teams, all right? I want them to become owners of mid to lower level type uh, tier types of teams, which, you know, while we know how important the super club is, the super club doesn't exist if you don't have everybody else. And then I want them to be faced with the potential of losing a lot of money, Okay, or securing that money that they have worked so hard to get through their career and that they now have invested in this project right now by accepting the fact that there's no promotion relegation. Or if they want to be all principled and stand on that uh, high horse uh, and then say, no, no, I want to risk all of the money that I have right now for the potential of my club right now because the principle is so important. Come on, come on, Mossy. It's easy from the outside to scream and yell about pro rel. If you're an owner, Okay, and you believe that this is the best way to go and you are putting your money and all of your money on the line. Okay, and you say, no, I'm not going to uh, accept this security of not having relegation. Fine, then you're fine. And I'll, I'll clap you and say, you know, you are a true believer and you are putting your money where your mouth is right now. But to say it from the outside, I get it. But it's, it's a, in my world, it's a like to have but not necessarily a need to have. Alex Dowd, if you're listening, I think we have our Twitter clip for the week. Alexi, (laughs) (laughs) referring to promotion, relegation, proponents as zealots. Second question, at Alex Goldstein 87, would you say George Ware is the greatest African player of all time? 
George Weah, the only African player to win the Ballon d'Or in 1995. I, I imagine you must have played against him in Syria. Yes. Uh, so not only did I play against him, but I actually played against him in his first ever Serie A game because it was my second year when I was in Italy and he had just come to Milan. And I, th I think I've told you about this before. He actually, not only did they end up winning the game, AC Milan against Padova, but he ended up scoring and he ended up scoring off his head and on a set piece. So it was not a good day for Padova or more importantly for me. Wonderful, wonderful player. But, and you mentioned he is the only African uh, player to win Ballon d'Or. And, and, and by the way, you know, the president of his nation <laughs> and certainly has gone on to much bigger and better things. You want to explain to the folks out there that don't know? Uh, yes, he's since become the, the president of uh, Liberia. And he also fathered uh, current uh, U.S. national team player, Timothy Weah. And at the end of the 90s, George Weah was voted the African player of the century. So at one point, there was a general consensus that he was the greatest African player of all time. But in the last 20 years, we've had Samuel Leto, Didier Drogba, Yaya Torre, Michael Essien, J.J. Okocha, more recently, Riyad Mane, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah. So there's no list of candidates that you could argue have pipped him for that title. Uh, so what say you? Well, okay. And, and you'd have to throw even the great Roger Mila in there. And I know his was much more from an international perspective uh, in terms of his, his statement that, uh, that he made. But yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to Eto, Wea, and Drogba, okay, for that top spot. Because, you know, you talk about Wea, and yes, he's got that Ballon d'Or that he can kind of drop in front of everybody. But when it comes to the trophies and the, and the longevity and the success that Drogba had. And, you know, you can argue Drogba is one of the greatest players ever or greatest imports, I guess, ever to the Premier League in terms of, uh, in terms of what he uh, did. And Eto with, you know, three Champions Leagues, by the way, for two teams, Barca and uh, Inter. So I still think if I, have to, if I have to pick one, I am going to go with Drogba. God, I want it by... Yeah, I'm, I'm still going to go Drogba, Eto, Weah, if I have to list those three. I don't think there's anybody else that even comes close to my, my top three, with all due respect to Torre and Okacha. And, I mean, we have to throw uh, Mo Salah in there at some point, too, in terms of that list, right? Yeah, I would say Mo Salah or Sagamani could end up in the top spot, but they're still in their primes. There remains to be seen everything they're going to achieve. I go Eto, number one. I think he has the best overall resume, won an Olympic gold medal with Cameroon in 2000, won two African Cup of Nations, great player for Barcelona, scored in two different Champions League finals, helped him win a treble in 2009 under Pep, and then goes to Inter, as you mentioned, and wins another treble in 2010 under Jose Mourinho. So uh, Samuel Eto, to me, had, a, had an absolutely incredible career, and I, I do think he has a better overall resume than George Weah. But so we can both agree, while we disagree who's number one, we can both agree that it's not George Weah. Correct. Okay, wonderful. All right, I hope that answers your question. Good question there. Good question there. What's next, Mossy? We'll end with this. At Troy Football, I am a Yank and both a soccer and Formula One fan. In Brazil, whom is more revered, Pele or Ayrton Senna? Hashtag Ask Mossy. Ooh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, Mossy. Well, then you start this off because I'm, I'm looking at it from an outsider. And from an outside perspective, even though I've, you know, I guess the documentary kind of enlightened me as to who not who he was, but how important he was. But I would still say from the outside, it's still got to be Pele, but I could be wrong. So you as, you know, our resident Brazilian, let me know if I'm, if I'm just misreading what's going on or I'm just so biased when it comes to uh, Pele because Pele has been so important and obviously the sport that we work in. Well, first off, I can't even convey to you how big Formula One is in Brazil. I remember as a young David Mossy growing up, waking up on... Sunday mornings and watching Formula One races with my dad. It was like appointment viewing. I caught that era of Ayrton Senna, Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost. And yeah, Senna was absolutely huge. He tragically passed away due to a crash during a race. It's actually coming up on the anniversary. I believe it was May 1st that he died in 1994, right before the 94 World Cup in the United States. And so the Brazil team sort of dedicated that, that triumph to him. That was sort of a big theme, you know, overhanging that campaign. And 
in the late 90s, uh, coming up in the end of the century, you started having all these century pulls, and Senna did finish above Pele in some of them, which is actually something that Maradona used to hit Pele over the head with when there was a debate between the two of them over who was the greatest soccer player in the century. Maradona would say, well, you're not even number one in your own country. People like Ayrton Senna more. Now, I attribute some of that to he had just died, the wound was still fresh, and so I think as the years have gone by, Pele has kind of reasserted his top spot. I would say he's probably the most revered Brazilian athlete of all time and the guy I would put in the top spot. But Senna is number two. And speaking of Senna and Maradona, they're now connected out through, it was the same director that did those documentaries. That did this, the guy that did the Senna one is the one that did the Maradona one that came out recently that we love so much. So that guy is two for two in my book because those to me are two of the greatest sports documentaries I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Now, to, to show you how Senna just didn't even register with me or wasn't on my radar, you know, you mentioned the fact that he died right before the World Cup in 94. We've talked about the World Cup in 94 and what Brazil was. And it didn't even, I didn't, it, it, I don't even remember thinking about, uh, about that. And yet it was so, such an important type of touchstone for that team and for that country, even in that, even in that moment. The only way that it, that, that I, and it's not as if I didn't hear about him or if you said to him, I'm saying, ah, he's a race car driver or something like that. But the, the documentary absolutely changed the way that, that I perceived of, you know, his, his ability, but also how important he was to Brazil. So I think what you're saying is that while we underestimate how important Senna has been to the Brazilians and the Brazilian culture, and by the way, what Formula One has been, to that society, it still doesn't quite catch or eclipse uh, Pele in terms of who is number one, despite what Maradona may think. Correct. Okay. All right. All right. Acceptable. Acceptable. But that's a great uh, Ask Mossy question uh, uh, right there. And it, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate that. Nothing else, right, uh, Mossy, when it comes to that's Ask it. Alexi? All right, but do continue to use that hashtag Ask Alexi and Ask Mossy out there. As you've seen, we, we don't, you know, we don't uh, differentiate. It's all asking us. And so uh, we can, uh, you can include Ask Alexi and Ask Mossy out there on the old uh, Twitter machine and uh, Instagram and all the different platforms out there. Do that uh, in each and every week. We'll pick some as we just did and uh, read them out and answer them, either comments, questions, or concerns when it comes to that. All right, Mossy, we good with that? Yep. All right, moving on. All right, Mossy, I'm excited about this uh, segment that we have here. As you know, we are right around the corner from the NFL draft. It, I mean, let's be honest. It may be the last such event that we see uh, for, for a long time. Although I, I should say that before our uh, airing on Sunday of uh, Indoor Soccer, our new weekly show on FS1, I was watching, by the way, in the hospital, I was watching... Uh, horse racing that we had put on betting on horse racing with my uh, with my child who was <laughs> was in the hospital uh, dad of the year but I, we will watch anything that has any type of uh, competitive thread going through it including the including the uh, the NFL draft but what we said is all right we're in the draft season right now let's go out there and, and let's try to do something related when it comes to it and what have we come up with here Mossy? Well, essentially, we're going to do a, a global soccer draft. So it's going to be 22 picks, 11 each, and we're going to take positions into account. At the end, at the, when the dust settles, we each want to have kind of like a, 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 an 11. So we're going 4-3-3 four, three, three formation, four defenders, three midfielders, three strikers, and a goalkeeper, obviously. I don't know if there was some sort of coin toss I wasn't privy to, but you've ended up with the first pick in every round. Uh, which, uh, yeah, you know. and we're just going to go back and forth. Uh, yes. And as I said, we're not going by position, okay? But we are saying that it's going to be a 4-3-3. How you want to, you know, what players you want to play in those positions is up to you. Um, but we're not, and we're, we're not going one and then two and then back, that, that kind of thing. It's just back and forth, one, one, one. All right, so I get to start it off. We don't know how that happened, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to go with it. And I'm going to let you have a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, normally we don't see this and people keep their cards pretty close to their, uh, their vest when it's coming uh, to a draft type of situation. But you have to know your opponent, okay? You have to understand how your opponent thinks because this is a competition. Now, luckily, I don't have a lot of opponents out there. I just have one, and I know that opponent very, very well. And this is what I know about Mossy. While he is a savant and while he is, in my estimation, 
you know, one of the great minds when it comes to thinking about the game uh, and incredibly intelligent when it comes to thinking about the game. At his core, he is a romantic and he is someone who will be swayed by passion, who will be personal, who will be emotional, and as I said, will be romantic. Even when every fiber of his being is telling him to do one thing, he will be swayed. And what will sway him? Well, we've already talked about it on this pod. Brazil. And so when I am looking as to who to pick, I have to look at Mossy, which I have done. And I have to look at a place that says, all right, well, you know, is this going to be a problem in that Mossy is going to pick that Brazilian and that Brazilian is somebody that I want, okay? When it comes to someone like between Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, I'm gonna get one of them. So I'm gonna be fine either way, okay? But there's other places where I know that I have to go to first because I'm worried that the Brazilian in him is going to pit me there. And right off the bat, that's a problem for me. So even in a normal situation, I would probably look to build my spine. And the start of that spine is goalkeeper. So I'm actually going to, and I know the most valuable thing in our in our game is people that put the ball in the back of the net, but I, I am gonna give value here because of what I just said about the Brazilian factor. And so right off the bat, I am taking Alisson from Liverpool slash Brazil. Off the books, in my team, in goal right there, Mossy. You're up, my friend. Okay, now I know how Rob Thorne felt when he heard the name Sam Bowie announced uh, because I am going to take your gift and pick Messi. Although I will say, I understand your logic. Since you're going to end up with one of Messi or Ronaldo anyway, then, then why not lock up another position first? So uh, I actually did, I think what you did was ra rather smart, but I will take Messi as my first pick. Okay, so you got Messi. And so I said I'm going to get either one. So obviously I have to take Cristiano because I don't want you to have both of those uh, guys. So now I got... Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, okay, you're up. Okay, my second pick, I am going to take Kevin De Bruyne. Oh, really, are you? Okay, any, any particular reason other than he's a great player? I think he is right now clearly the best midfielder in the world, so I wanted to lock him up. I'm gonna go up top, and I mean, it's not, it's not slim pickings, but it's not the greatest era for those types of players. But I am going to pick Lewandowski. All right. All right. Next for me, I'm going to go Virgil van Dijk. Oh, you bastard. Did you really? All right. Well, if you're going to go van Dijk, I know what you're going to do next, too, on your... Okay. All right. Okay. Fine. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go... Because I know you're going to want him. Um... I'm going to go with N'Golo Kante, okay, as my, uh, for lack of a better word, a defensive back, okay? Okay, tough one. Uh, I think I'm going to go back to the attack. I think I'm going to go Mbappe. Okay, it's impressive. It's good. I like it. I am going to go, as I said, I have Cristiano Ronaldo on one side. I have Lewandowski up top. And on the other side, I am going to go, or, or, or on a type of wing, I am going to go with Mr. Sterling, Raheem Sterling. Okay? All right, staying with the Liverpool thing, I'm going to lock up who I think is clearly the best player in the world at another position. I'm going to go Alexander-Arnold. It's my right oh. back. Okay, you're going to go with Alexander Arnold. Okay, that's. I just out of curiosity, who who would you have out there in terms of other uh, potential? I, I got mine, but you know now that you already picked a right back. Uh, on my board here, I had guys like Kimmich, Kimmich which is cheating a little bit because he doesn't he hasn't play right back much this season. Danny Alves, Trippier, Kyle Walker, guys like that. Okay, I am going to pick Koulibaly. The center back. Excellent pick. Excellent. Yes, you're damn right hoping. it is. You're damn right it is. Napoli and uh, Senegal, right? Senegal? Yep. Exactly. Okay. All right. A little bit of a hipster pick, but I love this guy. I'm going to go with 
Tiago Alcantara to get a second midfielder in there. Okay. I am going to go with a... I am going to go with a right back slash... Here. Right back slash center midfielder because he is versatile, but... He, but when he is at right back, he is one of the greats in the world. Kimmich. Joshua Kimmich from Bayern Munich and Germany. Uh, all right. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stay with the Liverpool theme here. I'm going to take Andy Robertson as my left back. That's, that's, that's good. All right. This is, you know, look, I, I thought about this, and I'm not, I'm not doing this just to titillate, okay, and just to um, ignite debate here. But so I have my back four moving along here. Kimmich hit right back. Lubali uh, as a center back. I think I'm going to get whoever I want uh, at my next center back position. And I also think I'm going to get this next person that I'm going to tell you as my left back position. But I don't think he would be on anybody's list uh, right now uh, on the on the board there for your. I don't know, probably not. Maybe it would be in in the top 10. But you know who I'm going with, my friend. Great no. White North. I'm going right to the Great White North. Alfonso Davies as my left back. Yes. Uh, he was number two on my board. I agonized over Robertson or Davies. I think that's a great pick. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I, 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 I'd be interested to see if, if people did have their boards, where he would fall right now in terms of uh, the left back uh, pickings going on right now. And we should mention he just agreed a contract extension with Bayern until 2025. Uh, Alex Dowd was eager to get that into the Ask Alexi, but uh, we had other questions we liked better. But still, it is news. We'll mention it here. All right. By my calculations, I have three left. You have four left. Let me ask you a positional question. If I were to take Neymar and... Mm -hmm. Is that okay? I already took Messi and Mbappe. I play Mbappe as a center forward. I call that my front three, Neymar, Messi, and Mbappe. You buy that, right? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so I'll do that. I'll take Neymar. All right, I am going to go with another center back here and just finish up my back four. And I'm going to, you know, we have young media, you know, young prime and then coming to the end, I guess. So I'm going to go with love him, hate him, I love him, Sergio Ramos. Right there. Little experience, little nuts. So that's my back four. Kimmich, Ramos, Kumbali, and uh, Davies. I thought about an Italian there, but all right. I'm going to stick with uh, Ramos. All right. I'm going to take a player I love, Marco Verratti, and close out my midfield here. So my midfield three is Verratti, De Bruyne, and Thiago. I'm, I'm curious, uh, just, uh, just a question for you. Did you uh, have Erlen Holland anywhere on your lists? Uh, yeah, he was uh, pretty high on my center forward list. I had Lewandowski number one on my center forward list, which you took, but Holland was up there like one of the three or four names on it. But uh, I, just, I just went with kind of best player available, Neymar, if, if you were willing to get, let me get away with not having like an out-and-out center forward. then right. You did not take Bernardo Silva, right? No. So he's on the board. Yep. I'm taking. So uh, your midfield right now is Conte, Silva. Have you taken a third that I missed? I have not taken a third. I still have one more. You have two more. Okay. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really agonizing on who my second center back is, so I'm going to punt that decision for my last pick, and I'm going to take Jan Oblak as my goalkeeper. You're going to go with Oblak. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. So just, just for the record here, because I don't have yours completely in front of me, do you have any Brazilians on your team right now? Uh, Neymar. Neymar. That's it. That's, that's all you have. All right, I have one more pick here. While I said that I was going to be happy with uh, either Ronaldo or Messi, it didn't really matter to me that I don't have Messi and therefore and while I want to pick David Silva in terms of that left-footed ability this is where everybody's going to scream and yell at me Uh, you know recently I had the audacity to say that uh, there was somebody in Major League Soccer that was in the top 25 players in the world by the name of Carlos Vela. Is he a poor man's Messi? I 
probably you could argue that. But I am going to get Carlos Vela, and I'm going to put him in a central type of role here. And I know I'm, I'm top-heavy in terms of going forward, but you know what? I, I'm really confident in my back four and Conte in front of that. And Alfonso Davies, we've already seen his ability to cover for so many players out there. So I'm comfortable doing a Carlos Vela in my, uh, in my team right there, which completes it. Done. That's my 11. Mossy, you got one more pick, my friend. For my second center back, a little bit of a hipster pick, but I'm going to go with uh, Skriniar, Milan Skriniar from Inter, player I love, uh, Slovakian. Oh, I had him way down my list. Slovakian, right? Yeah. Yeah, some of the other center backs I had were Marquinhos, Bonucci, Laporte, and then Van Dijk, Koulibaly, and Ramos, who have all been taken. Yep. Um, so, yeah, he's the highest one left on my board, so I won't overthink it. I'll just go with him. So that concludes my team. Okay, so I am going to read my team out so that there's no confusion, and then I'll ask you to read your team out. I have Alisson in goal, Kimmich at right back, Ramos and Koulibaly at uh, center backs, Alfonso Davies at left back, Golokante, Silva, and Vela. And this will be Bernardo Silva. Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Bernardo Silva and Carlos Vela. Uh, And then my front three in... You know, Ronaldo on one side, Sterling on another side. Pick your side, which, whichever one you, they want to be on, and I would have them switch all over the place. And then Lewandowski up top. What is, what is yours now, finally, so we, hit, we all understand it and we are clear? So mine is Oblak in goal, Alexander-Arnold at right back, Van Dyke and Skriniar as a center backs, uh, Andy Robertson at left back. Midfield three are Marco Verratti, Thiago, and Kevin De Bruyne. And then a front three of Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe. If I had not picked uh, Allison, would you have still picked Oblak? I had Allison, Oblak, and Terstegen. I, I had it in that order written down, Allison, Oblak, and Terstegen. But to be honest, I put all those three on the same level. So I wasn't going to kill myself over a goalkeeper. I, I sort of applied the same logic you apply with Messi and Ronaldo. If I get one of Allison right. or Oblak, I'm, yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, I mean, if there's, if there's a player that's far and away, like the – the Van Dyke one, I think, hurts me because I think he is so much better than everybody else out there, far and away. Um, you know, that's a prize type of pick that uh, that you got there. But listen, uh, send us your picks about things uh, when it comes to your eleven. If there was to be a worldwide type of draft, I'm sure that you will yell and scream at me for things that I have done and call me names for things that I have done. But you know, that's part of the uh, Part of the process, uh, part of the process here, and obviously our draft is a little bit different because there's only two teams. It's kind of like a, an expansion draft where there's two expansion teams coming in uh, that get to do it, as opposed to an NFL draft or a, a normal draft where you're competing against uh, so many others. But you know, ultimately, you have the same pool pool of players out there. What would your eleven be if you were to be able to pick from uh, the pool of the world, if you will? Uh, and you want it to be competitive, okay? You don't want it to be completely uh, top-heavy or uh, have the inability to actually function as a team. Because it, it is, uh, especially when you're getting into moments where you're comparing different players, they're, they're all great players. Most of them are you know, world-class type of players uh, out there. So put them in positions that you think would actually make sense in the real world and have that 11 make sense in the, in the real world and send them to us. Let us, uh, let us know what you think out there. Mossy, anything else uh, on this, uh, on this draft day, shall we say? Uh, nothing on this, but I did want to segue off this to okay. uh, some television notes. Uh, I referenced, uh, I don't know if you caught a, a sneaky little reference there to Rob Thorne and Sam Bowie. The most infamous draft moment in American sports history is in the 1984 draft. The Portland Trailblazers with the second pick took Sam Bowie when Michael Jordan was on the board. He went third to the Chicago Bulls and the rest, as they say, is history. And that moment was depicted last night. We're taping this on a Monday morning. Last night, ESPN premiered its highly anticipated 10-part 10-hour documentary on the 97-98 Chicago Bulls. Uh, This was supposed to run later in the summer, but to their credit, ESPN moved it up because they know that sports fans right now are fiending for something to watch. And so they ran the first two episodes last night. I thought they were absolutely terrific. 
So I was already excited for this and now I'm even more excited. And, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about great sports documentaries and I had the OJ Made in America one, which was that seven hour opus ESPN did. I had that very high on my list and this looks well on its way to being a a transcendently great sports documentary. Did you get to watch uh, any of it? I have not watched it because, as you know, I have a firm rule that I am not going to... You just said two episodes of a 10-episode series. Is that what it is? 10, seven right. episodes? What it is? What is it? Yeah, 10 episodes. And the point you're about to make is going to lead perfectly into my next uh, point I want to make. So everybody knows that even in normal times, this rule applies. And even more so now when we are all you know, sequestered and we are all uh, locked down. I will not start anything unless it is bingeable in the form of being able to start and finish it, okay? I don't want something that's in progress within an actual season of episodes, and I don't want something that is in progress within a lifespan of it. So when I start watching it, I want to be able to get to the end. I don't want to know that there's another season coming. I don't want to know that there's another episode coming, okay? Start and finish. That's what binging is about. I don't need to catch up because if I catch up to you, then I'm right back where I started in that I'm beholden. I'm beholden to everybody else, okay? And I don't want to be beholden to anybody, especially in this time. Get me in and get me out. Even if it's seven hours or 10 hours, give me that 10, give me that seven, and let me get out. I don't want, you're a pusher. You are a pusher out there, and you're just giving me a little little taste of uh, of that drug. And I know that's the whole point, right? That is, you know, that's the tactic of it but I'm not buying into it. I'm just saying no. I'm just saying no until it's all there and I can binge and have the party that I want to have. All right. Now, I've been thinking about you a lot lately because we've had this conversation about binge watching versus week to week viewing. I know you've expressed some frustration that the HBO Atlanta child murders documentary is going week to week. You'd like to have all five episodes available to you all at once. And I am, I binge watched better call Saul, which is currently in its fifth season. And the season finale is actually Uh, I said, we're taping this on a Monday morning. It's actually tonight. And I was trying to pace myself so that I would get caught up this weekend and then go right into watching the finale. But I love the show so much that I ended up watching more episodes per day than I initially planned. And I ended up catching up in the middle of last week. So it's been slightly bizarre, I have to admit, like to go from watching several episodes a day, every day for two weeks, to now having this like interminable, like five day wait for the season finale. It's absolutely killing me. Plus, I watched them all on Netflix with no commercials, 40-something minutes long, and now I'm going to watch this finale on AMC with commercials, so I'm all kind of disoriented. I did not handle this right at all. To continue, it (laughs) it is you are addicted, okay? They got you addicted, all right? They pushed it on you, and what you did is because you can't control yourself, all right? You went home with your stash, okay, and you blew it all, and now you're jonesing, and you got to have it. Okay, and you're out there on the street trying to figure it out, and it's not there. It's all dried up on the street. You're not going to find it. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I don't want to. I, I don't want to do that. But, uh, but you did say that Better Call Sal is is worth the time, uh, and even worth right now the withdrawal type of process. Yeah, listen, uh, I will render, like I said last week, one of the defining television debates of our time has now become Breaking Bad versus Better Call Saul. I will wait till Better Call Saul is completely finished. The season five finale is tonight. And then there's a, there's a six season still to come, a 13 episode six season. And then that's it. I will wait till the show is completely done before rendering a decision. But I will say it is absolutely on the same level. It is a fair debate. Better Call Saul is a transcendently great television show. Okay. All right. Well, listen, uh, we've come to the end of yet another show. Uh, Let us know what what you are watching out there. But at the end of each and every show, I give you one for the road. And I think back to hair. Uh, Never never has so much been made in terms of a a career or a life uh, around you know, a, a modicum of talent, but also a lot of hair and a lot of hair care products. And so I recognize uh, the importance of hair and how important it has been in, uh, in my life. Many years ago, when I first got to the national team, uh, the coach, Bora Militinovich, who we talk often about here on the uh, pod, was in a mode of testing, testing to see who we are, what we were all about as players and as people. And like any tester, he used different tests on different people at different times. And it became very apparent when this long hair walked in with you know, just big, crazy type of uh, curls flying all over the place, that hair was something that I took very seriously and was very, very important to me. 
And I'll never forget being, uh, and this was early on in the two-year process leading up to the World Cup in 94. We trained for two years. As I've said before, we were in residency. That was our life. It was kind of like we were at a club, but the club was the U.S. men's national team. We traveled the world and played games. It was early on in the process, and so I wasn't even sure that I was going to last the next week, let alone shore up in the World Cup in the summer of 94. And we were in, I'll never forget it, Phoenix, Arizona, playing an international, uh, international game. And I got a knock on the door, and it was Bora's representative, uh, his voice, his administrator that he kind of used as a conduit to get the information to the players, either because he didn't want to face them <laughs> or there was a language barrier that he thought uh, needed that type of translation. And he said, I got a message from Bora. You need to cut your hair. And I was... I was angry. I was not happy at all. And I screamed and yelled about individuality and, uh, you know, a, a country that prides itself on giving people, you know, the, uh, the opportunity to do what they want to do and, uh, you know, uh, the rights of people and all that kind of stuff. It was dumb. Uh, because the fact is that I would have done anything to be on that team. And so I walked two blocks down from the hotel we were staying. And I walked into a barbershop and they cut me, uh, they cut me deep. And I actually had them take all of the hair and I put it in a bag. I kept that bag for the next two years and had it with me the entire time, all the way through the process to remind me. And Bora never said another word to me for the next two years about my hair. And I proceeded to grow it back in many ways, not just on top of my head, but on my face. And for those that saw uh, me back in the nineties, that's what resulted in it. But the, you know, there's no moral to the story, but the fact is that I would have done anything to be on that team, including cut my hair, which is a stupid, stupid thing um, in the, in the greater scheme of things here. But it just goes to show you that, that Bora was constantly testing and I had passed that test and that passing that test was as important as being able to kick the ball in the right direction because he wanted to see and he needed to know that I would do whatever it took to be a part of that team, obviously within reason, but this was a, a small request, but he knew for me in particular it would resonate and it, was and it was important and therefore that much more difficult and that much more of a challenge. And the result that he got out of it, because you know, coaches are psychiatrists and, and coaches are manipulators uh, and, and coaches are responsible for knowing who these people are that they are going to put into positions of responsibility. And there's a constant diet that they have of information that they are intaking through things that they do questions that they ask, tests that they give on and off the field. And this was just uh, one of them. And he never said another word about, uh, about my hair. And obviously I, I grew it back even longer than it, uh, than it ever was because I had, uh, I had passed that test. So that's the story about the, uh, the hair. And people ask me all the time, do you still have that bag of hair? As gross as it is, I still have that bag of hair. It's in storage uh, right now, but it reminded me uh, each and every day that you know, you make sacrifices big and small when it comes to uh, life and obviously when you're, uh, you're playing on a team. Uh, Mossy, anything before we head off into the uh, great unknown here? No, that is it. All right. We hope that you'll continue to uh, stay safe and sane out there and we're all doing the things to protect ourselves uh, and others. Uh, once again, thank you to all the uh, medical folks out there all across the country, around the world uh, that are working so hard in particular, as I said, because... Uh, of the weekend that I spent. Thank you to all the uh, doctors and nurses and medical staff uh, over at Torrance Memorial for a, while it's a scary experience, they made it uh, as wonderful as it could be with their incredible professionalism uh, and their kindness and obviously their, uh, their commitment in what can only be said is interesting times, as we say all the time. All right, Mossy, uh, we will talk again next week. Please download and subscribe and review and do all the different things out there on all the different platforms. Uh, stay safe, stay sane, and as always, size the day. <laughs>